so we've uh, we've just ticked over to four o'clock, so I'm going to kick off the call right now. My name's Bonnie. I'm moderating the call today for the Orton Family Foundation. Uh, we are talking about dialogue and deliberation today, and we have two fabulous speakers, Sandy and Chris, joining us. Um, just to give you a little overview of the protocols for the call, we ask everybody to sit on mute. We're expecting quite a lot of people on the line today. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind putting yourself on mute, which is star six, um, that will also take you off mute when, uh, when it's time to have a chat. We are going to run through um, and do some introductions from Sandy and Chris and then open up for a really great candid discussion. We have a Google document available. Everyone should have access to the link for that where you can follow along, take notes. Please add any links or anything of interest that you think would be really useful for people to know about, any case studies, any great projects that you're working on. And we also ask that you use this for questions. So if you have any questions for Sandy or Chris or for anyone else on the line, please feel free to type that in and add your name at the end, and I'll be able to call out and uh, get you to come off mute and ask a question and join in the conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over and introduce Sandy, who's the director of the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation, to give a little introduction about herself and her work. So Sandy, take it away. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Bonnie. And thanks, everybody, for the opportunity to talk to you today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, my name is Sandy Heyerbacher, director of NCDD, the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation. We started up in about 2002, well, in 2002, when we had our first national conference on dialogue and deliberation. And basically, NCDD is a network of programs, organizations, individuals, people who are consultants, decision makers, who do dialogue and deliberation work, meaning they bring people together across differences in order to handle some of our more challenging problems, like um, political problems, like uh, like budget issues, um, water, other natural resource, um, natural disasters, all kinds of problems that um, we need to get together to talk about um, creating different kinds of solutions for, and we need to hear all sides of of a an issue. Um, but there's many terms for this work. We talk about dialogue and deliberation. We talk about deliberative democracy. People talk about civic engagement, democratic governance, participatory planning, bridge building, process arts, the arts of democracy, collective intelligence. So there's, there's a lot of overlapping terms um, that you guys may be more or less familiar with if you're not involved in dialogue and deliberation directly. Um, and there's also a lot of different methods, like study circles, America Speaks 21st Century Town Meeting, Open Space, World Cafe, National Issues Forums, Charette, Appreciative Inquiry. And one of the things that NCDD does is, although we, NCDD, doesn't go out and run dialogue and deliberation programs, what we do is we provide services for the people who do run dialogue and deliberation programs. So we provide them with opportunities to connect with each other, to learn from each other, to get together at conferences. And a lot of the time what we do is we help people to feel like they're not alone in this work. Um, when I first got into this field and did a whole bunch of phone interviews for an internship that I was involved in, um, I learned that people 
who do this work often felt like they were the only ones in their community doing this work, and they would have to explain each and every time they talked about their work, you know, what it was. We bring people together for this purpose. This is why it's different. We use ground rules. We use facilitators. And one of the things that NCDD does is just allow people to feel like they're not alone in this field. There's a lot of other people to connect with and, and learn from. So I guess I'll, I'll keep my intro to that, and we can get into questions in a little bit. Thanks, Sandy. That's a really great overview. Uh, Chris, do you want to follow up with uh, the work that you've been involved with in Portsmouth? Sure. Um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is a small city uh, on the seacoast about an hour north of Boston, uh, it's it's an, sort of an urban core for a larger um, area. The For about 12 years, in different kinds of uh, uh, instantiations, different approaches, our community has used the study circle process and some spin-off activities from the study circle process to uh, address various uh, community issues. And at this point, um, as an elected official, I have a different uh, relationship to study circles than I did um, earlier on. So I've participated in both the framing of some of the dialogue for study circles and um, steering a couple of the steering committees associated with a couple of them, um, getting them set up, identifying the questions, helping to think about what the material is. And then on the other, and also participated as a member of a study circle, but um, in the last six years or so as an elected official, I've been on the other side of receiving the input from uh, study circles uh, re related to various community decisions that we have had. And we have used study circles both for some what I would call uh, high-stakes decisions as well as some uh, medium-stakes decisions and some, um, uh, some areas that are almost more educational or informative. And um, each of those brings with it its own um, set of kind of lessons. Um, I think the two that have probably been most successful in our recent past, um, in New Hampshire, we communities are required to do master plans, community master plans, as I think they are in, in many states. And in New Hampshire, anyway, those master plans have a um, have good force. They really are. Uh, we really do use them to guide community decisions. So we had a large study circle process over a number of months to provide input and shape our last master plan. And that um, that process, I think the community, everyone in the community would say was highly successful, garnered a lot of civic interest, brought people into um, civic activities who had not been involved before. So I would call that a very successful process. We can talk uh, about why that might have been. And then we had a really sticky issue a couple years ago, which was about uh, where to locate and if to renovate or start a new a middle school. Um, as, an old, as a community with a lot of historic buildings, we often get into these issues about uh, renovate, replace, um, and we were kind of stuck as a community in a polarized way over people who wanted to um, 
build a brand new middle school on the outskirts of town and get it done really quickly and those who wanted to take the um, more expensive route of renovating an older school kind of in the middle of town. Study circles were used to illuminate that issue and get us past as a community what had become a really polarized situation. So those are two areas where I can say from my um, stance as, as somebody who then has to make decisions about how dollars are used and whatever, um, those were two very helpful uh, instances of dialogue that involved large numbers of people, uh, reasonably representative, but, you know, not perfectly. We can talk about that as well, um, to, to help make community decisions. Some of the spin-off kinds of uses of dialogue coming out of this, have created this demand, um, are, um, Examples of, uh, you know, prior to an election, having opportunities for uh, pairs or tri uh, triads of candidates to meet with uh, uh, citizen roundtables, uh, you know, not an unusual activity, but done under the study circle format, um, you know, that type of thing. So those are some examples I can give. There are other examples we can talk about it used for different situations, but I would say, you know, now having had about 12 years of this in our community, we have a lot of people who've been trained as facilitators. We have what I would call study circle groupies. I'm not sure that's necessarily a good um, thing, but it means that there's always a core group of people who want to participate. Um, and um, I think you'd find that um, most of our citizens know about the process, understand the process, have participated, many have participated in one way or another, and have um, and, and value aspects of, of the process greatly. So maybe I'll stop there. Thanks, Chris. That's a really great overview and um, a couple of great deep dives that I think we should definitely come back to. Um, you mentioned a, a couple of times that you have been involved in this process for about 12 years now. Do you uh, do you have some advice to people on the call that might be looking to just get started with this kind of process in the community? I think it's really important to start with, uh, you know, you it's sort of a truism that the process will be known by the issue that you start with for at least a long time. So thinking carefully about the issue that you start with and the opportunity for success. While there were some issues that preceded our community master planning process, one of the great things about using study circles for master planning is that it really was not about a polarizing issue. It was about um, having people think forward about uh, various sectors of the community and the kinds of things that they would like to see reflected in the community. So there were many jumping off points for people who participated. So um, when some people got involved with that, um, they didn't think, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't come here to only talk about X because um, if their interests were transportation, there was a place for them. If there were education, there was a place. If there were arts and culture, if there were natural resources, housing. Uh, and then there were places to intersect those circles. So I think something that has some characteristics of being uh, reasonably open-ended allows a lot of talent to be put on the table and explored and then creates this uh, and has an overall 
a larger uh, community piece that all of these are feeding into. It's kind of a win-win situation. It was it it really was a, a turning point, I think, for our study circles. Fantastic, Sandy. How about how about you? What um, what tips can you give people on the line that um, that they might be able to start implementing to get some of these kind of processes happening in their communities? Well, um, I would suggest that people check out some of the resources that we've put together on the NCDD site. I see some questions in the Google Doc that we have that NCDD members have asked repeatedly, and so we've. We both tapped into NCDD members to find what practitioners on the ground are doing about some of these questions. Like one person asked, "How do you? What are the top five things that you can do to take steps towards participatory budgeting in communities?" And we have a great resource on the site on participatory budgeting, where we've put together some of the best resources that we've been able to find and tips from practitioners. And one of the best resources that I know about is actually a Facebook group that one of our members, Tiago, um, runs on participatory budgeting, and he keeps everyone updated on kind of what's going on in that realm of, of practice. It's a very cool um, Facebook group. And so I'm going to actually, later on when I'm not talking, I'll share some links to some specific things. Um, we also have a, a nice page on running a dialogue and deliberation program. It includes some of the steps involved and links to some of the best how-to tools to help you get started. Um, but one thing that I, that I could offer right now and probably should is we've developed something over the years called the Engagement Streams Framework that helps people think about when to use different dialogue and deliberation processes, um, especially when we first started in this field and started getting practitioners together through NCDD. It was obvious that people were confused by just the number of different processes out there and and there's in our field there's a lot of people who get really passionate about one particular process and so we created this framework to help people think about you know what's the main reason that you want to get citizens together to talk about contentious issues is it is it that you want to help them learn more about an issue um, and learn more about the community so it would be really focused on learning and exploring, and that's our exploration stream where you use methods like Open Space and World Cafe, or is it that you want to solve, a, resolve a conflict that's out there or try to deal with a really contentious conflict? Um, maybe the, the Public Conversations Project is a good example of a, of a method that it falls under the conflict resolution stream, or um, is it to influence a decision, a public decision, uh, which a lot of the deliberation methods or most of the deliberation methods fall into that decision-making stream. So you'd use a method like America Speaks 21st Century Town Meeting or you'd use citizen juries or deliberative polling or any method that really focuses on deliberation is, is meant to influence a person in power by providing them with data that they can use towards their decision? Or is it to really empower people to, to solve a problem themselves and to take responsibility for that problem themselves, in which case it would be the fourth engagement stream, which is called collaborative action, which is all about putting power into the hands of citizens and, and having them work together beyond differences to try to solve 
a contentious issue or problem in their community. And so you have methods like um, everyday democracies, study circles, um, and future search falls under collaborative action. So that's a tool that I think I'd like many, many more people to know about because people usually find it really helpful and it kind of it decreases a lot of that a lot of that confusion that people have when they first learn about this work. So, Sandy, that sounds like a, a long list of really important tools that people can access. Um, there's a note here from Karen uh, with a question. Karen, do you want to talk about um, about your interest in um, this? Sounds like dealing with some conflict situations, uh, which speaks to Sandy's first point there, um, which a question about race and religion. Uh-huh. Do you want to talk to that? Yeah, I um, have studied a couple of different models, and I'm just thinking about it in terms of kind of the second question relates as well, is, you know, how thinking about how to facilitate dialogues and which models work well where the, in the interfaith perspective where the spiritual piece is actually integral to the process as opposed to let's leave that out because we're never going to agree. And then um, um, something that is is related to both race and religious differences is how do you create, uh, tweak and modify your, your ground rules and your tools in a way that speaks to people in their language, their lexicon, and also brings people together? I know those are two big questions. They sure are. So, Sandy, Chris, Chris, do you have uh, experience in this in your work in Portsmouth? You know, I would certainly say that um, the issue for us of uh, across lines is um, socioeconomic and how do you encourage the diversity socioeconomically? I, I think in our in our particular community, um, the which is uh, a I'll say a bivariate community in that approximately 25% of our housing is low income housing. You know, as I said, we sort of serve as a hub for um, a, a large community, a larger um, base. And so a fairly high proportion is low-income housing. But then we also have uh, a very high uh, – the, the, uh, we also have a very um, high, uh, uh, high socioeconomic population on the other side. So one of the challenges we found of the study circles is, you know, people who like to get together, uh, study, research, talk about things, um, it – Maybe it was, it's been very difficult to try to attract into uh, groups of folks like that that might be fairly high-powered in their expertise, uh, might come to this with uh, skills that they bring from their other areas, and then to, say, from a housing development area to attract people to join in, you know, study circles um, of that type. It's not a problem that's been solved. There have been some uh, attempts to uh, actually let to begin. I'll, I'll use the term warming people up to the study sort of concept by doing some groups that are more homogenous, so that people get the practice in 
um, and the comfort in participating in the discussion. I think that's a real issue for the study circle approach where it requires some commitment of time for people to participate. As an elected official, it's been one of those uh, areas where we have kind of pressed the study circle folks um, because, because then the reports of groups you know, are not as representative as they need to be. We have had some success with young people, so doing some particular groups targeted at young people within these same issues, not separate issues, um, that are done as uh, part of a uh, public school setting. So you get some more diversity of opinion and perspective and socioeconomic groups within that. But um, that's a challenge. It's a real challenge. I think our master planning process, again, because it was a little bit broader uh, in terms of what it was about and it was a new thing, probably had more diversity in it than some of our subsequent groups. So that's um, the process for the master planning um, is more of a collaborative vision creation. Um, is, would, that, would you say that's true? I think that's um, fair. It has, you know, elements of both, but I think on the continuum it, it moves more toward that end. Mm-hmm. And so there's quite a different process that you go through um, around conflict resolution or the creation of a collaborative vision. Can you kind of talk through the, the differences or the similarities that you might work through? I think the um, preparation for two different processes like that and the facilitator preparation are are key. So in the collaborative visioning, um, you could say that the preparation is part of the process that everybody uh, sort of participates in in bringing information to the table. While that's true in the conflict resolution, in those that I've been involved with, it's been very important to bring to the table a base of information that everybody has at the outset so that um, the, there's um, a consistent body of information that people are working from. And the facilitators for those are really carefully chosen. Um, I also think that there's, um, by the leaders of the, of the study circle process, a, um, a careful kind of uh, debriefing of facilitators and support for facilitators during that process uh, so that, um, you know, they have support to help uh, address conflicts that occur and help to, you know, bring about clarity in groups. I'd love to address Karen's question as well if there's time. Yeah, go ahead, please. Okay, yep. this is Sandy again. And it's such a good question. I hesitated to respond to it because literally we could have 10 conference calls just on those couple of questions that you asked, Karen. I'm sure you know. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> Are you familiar with the Public Conversations Project's work? Yes, I, I did. Um, I completed their Power of Dialogue three-day okay. training, and I think it's fabulous. Good. Uh, um, for those on the call who might not be aware, um, one of the really interesting cases in our field is uh, was run by the Public Conversations Project um, a number of years ago where they got together um, six pro-life and pro-choice 
leaders in the Boston area to have a sustained dialogue about um, abortion and activism. And, um, you know, they the Public Conversations Project really does a great job at, at some of the pre-work that, that's required when there's high levels of, of conflict and a lot of values, uh, spiritual and, and emotional and, and, you know, all of that stuff that we bring to the table when it comes to con- contentious issues. And so they do a lot of work, and, and you know, that case is an example of, mm-hmm. of an instance where they actually worked individually with each person that was involved in, in that dialogue before they even brought everyone together to talk about, you know, how do you prefer to talk about this work, you know, what terminology, I mean, to talk about these issues, what terminology is acceptable to you and what what terminology will just turn you off immediately. And so even basic um, basic considerations like that sometimes need to be um, worked on, you know, for a long time before you even get people together. So I think again it depends on the stream of engagement that you're in. If you're if you're doing conflict resolution, you you know you're going to devote a lot more time um, to an effort than if you're trying to influence a public decision and and you know that a politician is going to be voting in October on on a certain issue. So you want to get some public input to that person. So hopefully that's a little bit helpful. If anyone's interested in, there's a wonderful um, article on that on that abortion dialogue that that PCP did that I could email you if you send me that's an email. Great. Thanks, Eddie. Okay. That's a, that's some really great insight. Uh, I want to I want to continue talking about uh, the different processes that people can go through here, and uh, when we're talking about building a, oh, nice. a collaborative process, Thank you. Um, and just a, a quick reminder, if you're not on mute, uh, it's star six, so you should be able to press the mute button um, if you're ordering coffee or uh, lunch, <laughs> wherever you are. Um, so uh, I know we have John Barstow on the line from the Orton Family Foundation, and these guys are really involved in a lot of uh, deliberative dialogue and building very collaborative decision-making processes. John, I wondered if you might be able to give us a little background and insight into the work that you're involved with in some of the communities that you work with. Absolutely, Bonnie. It's great to be on the call. Thank you all for being here. Um, the Orton Family Foundation's um, sort of foundational thinking is that the, the more people you have making decisions, the better the decisions are. Um, and so we're we push, push, push ourselves in the towns, communities where we work for a two to two and a half year process of building common themes around visions for the future of a place to, um, to constantly try to reach more people and engage them in dialogue. And one of the ways we do this is um, a rather soft, quote unquote, way, um, which is through storytelling, um, which brings small or sometimes larger group together to begin to tell their own stories about what they care about in a place. And we've found, and I'd be happy to field questions on that process, but that it does an extraordinary job in most cases of, of starting to bridge gaps because people in the same room telling their own stories um, uh, begin to have more trust. And we've seen this work in communities where they're quite 
along divides, um, in one instance, particularly newcomers versus um, old-timers, you know, descendants of the founders of the community. Um, so I think um, dialogue, communication, is what I call it, is so important to break down divisions and get people moving together towards something, and then that's another whole, you know, then you have to move off of that. Um, in our case, it's about visioning um, a future that has enough common, commonly held values to be able to eventually become um, adopted code um, to do with community and land use planning. I'd love to hear some questions. Um, if you have any, um, I can fill you in on other details um, as we go along. But um, I just will say that it's, it is, uh, without dialogue, we feel uh, the process is stuck where it is, where very few people say the same things to each other over and over. So, John, what are some of the techniques you use to draw out people's stories? Oh, um, one of the easiest to draw out stories, first of all, one of you said earlier that, that the language can be important, it can be off-putting, and you have to be aware of that. And storytelling can be off-putting because most people, many people don't think of themselves as quote-unquote storytellers who can spin a great yarn. Mm-hmm. And that's not really the kind of story we're talking about. Um, and one of the ways in, in small groups, we call them story circles, to, to just naturally bring people out. They're broken up into small groups of six or eight, and there's a big map of the community on the table, and they get to just look at it, and they're at, it's a prompt to say, tell us about a place that you care about or where something happened to you, and invariably someone identifies with a, with a spot. If they're a long time, you know, they've lived there forever, it's, I don't know, it may be the, you know, place by a waterfall where they fell in love, who knows. Um, but it really brings people out linking their lives to place and what's special about it. And it opens people up with great ease. The other way to do it is to bring an object that you want to talk about. I find for some people that's a little forced. It isn't quite as easy as just a map to start to engage them and break down. People tend to be scared of sharing what they think because they're so used to sort of confrontational situations with any public gathering. They're usually meetings where this is not encouraged behavior at all. Um, so it takes a little to, to break down those, those sort of, I mean, it's shyness and it's, it's people being nervous that they don't have anything to offer where, in fact, we believe they have everything to offer. Um, can you give a couple of other examples in addition to the map, which is great, like other kind of, a you know, an object or a focal, a focus that opens up the stories? Yeah, we'll bring, asking, you know, there's a little more prep because you've got to really make sure everyone who's coming to a meeting gets all and get the word and that please bring an object that means something to you that can focus your discussion. Um, in other instances, um, I'm trying to think of some others where there are other ways in. Um, I just saw a really interesting one. Uh, I was attending a facilitated session, and this seems very silly, but, um, you know, it's the int- going around to do introductions. And... That can be a very important moment to either just go through it and say your name or make something happen to sort of um, make connections. And the facilitator asked all of us to tell our whole name, including a middle name if we had one, and spend a moment saying why you've got that middle name. And it was extraordinary what that little tiny device opened up because there are often really interesting reasons, um, some totally quirky, some like the family name, and I found it to be an extraordinary sort of tongue loosener 
Um, and of course, um, <laughs> um, the atmosphere in which you hold such storytelling circles, the setting, the atmosphere you create is very important and it needs to be paid attention to. Uh, is it Saha? Are you uh, the one that's writing the comments about the film? Do you want to talk about your experience with that? Do you need a minute to take yourself off mute? I think you can uh, do can that. Can you hear me? This is Sahar. Yes. Hi. Uh, yeah, I, I work at Active Voice. We're a team of uh, communication strategists that specialize in the use of film and uh, story-based, character-driven media uh, to kind of help get uh, conversations, dialogues, and actions happening in different places. And we have found that um, we sort of put our stake in the ground uh, around film and, and uh, the use of story that sort of captivates people and helps you uh, take a moment to walk in someone else's shoes um, can really provide a, 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 we found it provides a really great platform for people to kind of come together, have a shared experience, one that maybe surprises them, and watch other people on screen change over time and begin to talk about what about those characters they can relate to that they maybe wouldn't have known they could relate to before, particularly if there's a racial or religious difference. Um, uh, there are a variety of ways that um, uh, story and, and characters on, on, on screen can really help bring an audience in the room together if uh, a good facilitator is present and, um, or a good panel is present that can kind of begin to address uh, things that are raised by the film. Um, so that's something that I just wanted to throw out there as you're thinking about. I mean, I, I, I noticed you, um, you mentioned uh, bringing in an object or something to... Um, kind of get people on the same page and, and beginning a conversation, and I found that film is uh, can be that object. <laughs> yeah, that's a great insight. Yeah. Sandy, do you guys have any uh, techniques or tips or tricks that you use to get people starting to talk to each other? Do you use objects or maps? Well, like I said, NCDD is a, a network of the people who do this work, so it's really our members that you would ask that question to via our listserv. Or, but trying to think about what they do, I mean, certainly using film is a is a great tactic, and we have a lot of, um, uh, in fact, some active voice films for sure in our resource center to, to point people to. Um, and one of the things that we've done that, people might not know about that I think is really valuable is we created these public playlists on YouTube, all the dialogue and deliberation related films we could find. We organized into various playlists. So some one of them is called About Dialogue and Deliberation and one is called Dialogue and Deliberation Events. So it's about particular events or programs and there's about seven or eight different um, playlists and it's they're that's a great resource because you want to usually play something at the beginning of a dialogue that gets people thinking, gives them a common framework, a common reference to talk about, um, gets their emotions going, but but doesn't necessarily last too long. So the things on YouTube are usually only you know three to five minutes. So it's a good it's a good resource. Um, I think. A lot of, you know, what really works to get people to a deeper level much faster is related to the arts. So film is a great resource, but also 
um, things like graphic facilitation can really work, you know, showing people um, visually what what they've been talking about and having them see a conversation in a, in a different light. Um, things like playback theater, which is more for a larger group at a at a conference, but seeing what people are saying in dialogue, seeing it acted out on stage can really bring people to a, a deeper level much more quickly so then they can continue the conversation and and it's as if they've been talking for a couple of hours, they can delve just so much deeper into their emotional response to issues. So the arts are really a great resource for dialogue that um, might not be talked about as um, as much as it should be. Can you give us an example of a, a time when you've seen playback theater work really well and give us a little bit more context about it? He, well, the, the one time that I've really seen it well, well, actually a, a couple of times they've been at conferences, and one was our own conference in 2004. It was the first time that I had ever seen playback theater. And... Um, at, at conferences, you know, people are being polite to each other. They're not necessarily wanting to delve into their deepest, darkest opinions on things at a conference. But at our conference, we were able to, I, I think what they did was they called on a couple people that had really interesting stories to tell. There was there was one woman, this was in 2004, um, and there was one woman who was Muslim and started talking about what it's like for her um, in her community as a Muslim and, and some of the struggles that she had gone through um, in a largely white community. And, you know, you might, at a conference, you might hear that at a little table discussion usually, and that might take that particular table to a deeper level um, but to have that on stage and have everyone hear that and be able to then get into table discussions and, and discuss that and, and talk about something that happened in their community, it just is such a great um, it's such a great addition for an event like that. And, and then Everyday Democracy, when back when it was called Study Circles Resource Center, they used playback theater. I think they were inspired by our conference. Um, but they used playback theater at their conference um, maybe six months or a year later. And I can't remember any particular stories from that, um, but it was also just very powerful, and it always gets really high ratings. And if you do it, if you really integrate it with a large group um, dialogue, it can be very powerful for a conference plenary session. This is John again. I'm not sure what is most useful to other folks on the line. Um, we had a very successful conference in Denver last October and um, hired Sojourn Theater to produce um, theater at the end to, to reflect back what we said. But that's a pretty big undertaking, and um, I don't know if we can think of hear more ideas about ways um, to really encourage um, this kind of dialogue on smaller levels with maybe fewer resources. I think those things are exciting, and it was very useful to our conference. But um, uh, I, uh, I see that um, Todd on the Google Doc is, is directing me to some something called um, uh, Shelbyville Multimedia. Um, I haven't checked it out, but um, 
easy, easy sort of entry point for folks to use their voices and be heard. That's uh, a great point, more John. To say on that. Todd, do you want to jump in and, and tell us a little bit about the work you're doing? Actually, this is Todd. That, that wasn't me with the Shelby Multimedia. That was Sahara. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> so she she posted something there. I'm really interested in hearing her talk about that also. <coughs> Hi, yes, this is Sahar again. Um, sorry if that was confusing. Um, yeah, one, one, I was just responding to um, the great point about getting people involved. So um, when, you know, at, at a lot of the events, another great way to engage people uh, that are having this conversation is to give them an opportunity and space to um, uh, tell their own story, and those rooms are rich and full of them. So we've been encouraging for the initiative that I've been talking about um, on, on the document here, um, uh, Welcome to Shelbyville, we've been encouraging people who do the screenings of that film or all the, uh, the other films that are associated with it, the, the shorter video modules, uh, encouraging people at those screenings to um, collect stories either, that, either via audio um, recording, video recording on, uh, you know, on an iPhone. Um, it's really simple these days to collect that, that kind of, those kinds of um, uh, videos and, and, and audio recordings. Also, uh, even text, just writing down the stories and then uh, lift, putting them somewhere public. Uh, in our case, we have this site where we're collecting stories from lots of organizations, but encouraging them to also link those stories that they're contributing to their own pages and stuff where dialogues can happen online as well. Um, and, and also through that, uh, you know, there, there's something from the dialogue space where people are all in a room together. There's something very pow powerful about that. And to take the energy of that space and keep it moving, um, I think, is really uh, important. Um, this is Chris. I've seen, you know, really great uses of similar things, just um, having people post some things ahead of time on a site prior to maybe engaging us in a study circle in answer to a question or two, which can be text or can be photographs. Um, in doing, which, you know, planners do a lot, uh, we had a planning um, of corridor where people who lived in that corridor were all invited, given small cameras and invited to um, take pictures ahead of time that would be posted vertical for things that really grabbed their attention that they liked, horizontal for things that they didn't like. And then when they came to the first session, those had all been organized and posted and kind of classified, and it was just a great starter discussion um, for uh, people to begin talking to others who, you know, they wouldn't have known before start, uh, prior to actually starting uh, a dialogue session. That's a great point, Chris. Um, and I just saw a comment come in there um, from from someone about using online tools and social media in these kind of process. Um, have you had any experience of uh, of using online tools to get people engaged before the process, or during the process, or after the process? Um, to reach you know, in the a wider audience. In the simplest way of um, uh, forms on a website that uh, people answer some questions to that are then uh, synthesized and fed back as an opening to a dialogue. Um, you know, very low tech, 
but uh, easy for people to respond to. And for people who don't want to respond in a technology way, they can do that on paper and others can enter that. So, um, yeah, I think uh, in one of our sustainability study circles, um, that was an interesting way to kick things off because I think people were surprised about some of the items that were coming up and some of the patterns of behavior that people were describing as frequent or infrequent that were related to sustainability. So it was sort of a a, a group read that, um, you know, was done ahead of time. I'm seeing, uh, Ben, do you want to talk about the work that you've been doing? Um, sounds like you've got a lot of experience in this. I do. The Google Docs work. <laughs> Thank you. Um, which was actually something that um, a few people from, from NCDD uh, and I started playing with in various ways, and it, and it found to be really uh, a great a great synchronous tool to add online. Yeah, I um, I partner with Amy Lenzo of the World Cafe Community Foundation um, to provide online services for the World Cafe uh, through a, a vehicle we call We Dialogue, um, and um, we. We've done a lot of World Cafe type formats as well as other things. We, we recently did a virtual component to a face-to-face -face gathering that was that was quite interesting, where we were streaming, uh, uStream video, and um, running a maestro conference call. We had breakouts going on on the phone while there were breakouts going on in the room. Um, so there's a lot that's possible now uh, with with some of the new technology that's coming online. Um, and at the same time, it is it is different. You know, online is not a substitute for face to face. It's it's a complement. It's a new it's a new terrain. And, and I think where we're headed ultimately is a is a blending and emerging often of of the two. And I think within you know some period of years, we won't really be thinking of them as separate. We'll be thinking that any time we do dialogue and deliberation, there's there's an online component to it as well as you know in many cases a face to face. Although. Obviously, sometimes you can do online in cases where you can't gather people physically. Um, so, uh, are there some particular questions that people have about about what is possible or what's different? Um, I think we've only scratched the surface, I'll say, of what is possible. By the way, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in working with people going forward on um, on what we might do to to really fully develop that that possibility. Sure, and it's, uh, I think there's a bunch of really great resources in the document right now. Um, and uh, Ben, you should throw your contact details down in there if people want to get in touch. Um, that'd be a great. I'm having a very hard time hearing you. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you should, ben, if you put your uh, contact details in there, I'm sure people will get in touch if they um, if they want to speak to you offline as well. Um, I just I want to make sure we get through all these questions, and I'm seeing one in here uh, which I think is a, a good transition point around ongoing mentoring support available to community organizers. This comes from Sasha, who I think jumped off the line now, but um, it seems to me like there are a lot of tools available online for ongoing support. Um, Sandy, you can probably speak to a whole bunch of those. Um, but uh, is there any any great communities that exist or um, additional resources that people can access to um, to get ongoing support in their organizing? Well, if, if you're asking me, I mean, obviously I recommend NCDD. It's a great 
uh, network of people, and, and especially if you participate in our main listserv, it's a great resource. Um, if you have questions about doing dialogue and deliberation work, you get a range of, of people responding um, rather quickly. So it's just great to have that kind of uh, response. And, um, you know, there's a, a lot of networks out there, and I think, you know, Community Matters is, is becoming more and more of a network, too, that um, if there's some ways that people can get actively involved, maybe um, maybe Rebecca could speak to that on the on the call. Um, but definitely, you know, join NCDD. It's, it's um, $50 a year, but that's optional, so a lot of people join for free, unfortunately. Uh, but we'd love to have um, people join, no matter if you can pay dues or not. You know, that's not the most important thing for us. It's having you involved. So other organizations that um, that do that provide support. Um, it really it depends on if you go to events like the International Association for Public Participation is a good organization, and you can really get support if you go to the um, the conferences that they hold. Um, what are some others? I'm sure there's a lot of others um, that people want to bring up. Um. Thank you for um, the uh, uh, John again mentioning Community Matters. Becca is at an uh, awesome conference herself um, today and tomorrow, so she's not on the line. Mm-hmm. But I did want to say that Community Matters is, I mean, this, this conference call series is one of our ways of staying in touch with folks who attended the conference, and every bit is important, reaching and finding new people that did not attend. Um, and one of the things we're working on in our planning between now and our next conference, which will be um, uh, 2012, are ways to find how to make these conference calls move toward smaller groups or a, a small group of towns that we help facilitate getting together on action and finding something small enough that is actionable that they can share ideas and help each other get things done. So that's one thing I'm very hopeful about in the you know, developmental stages. We hope to do something with it this fall um, to help build Community Matters as a resource for more and more people. The one other quick thing I wanted to say about the online offline is that we did use a very simple device prior to Community Matters, um, and I'll put the put it on the resources. We used eDemocracy um, to just allow people to chat and introduce themselves to each other online, and it proved to be it was very easy. It was done on on eDemocracy platform. We didn't have to build a lot of fancy stuff into ours, and loads of people got on. Um, attend, you know, it was pitched, of course, to people who had registered, and it created wonderful buzz as people introduced each other and found connections and lent a great deal to folks getting there wanting to meet people they've met online in the flesh, and, of course, that's a very important part of it. So um, I'll put that on um, eDemocracy. They're doing some other interesting things, and I think we'll work with them some more. Thanks, John. That's uh, that's great. And I'm seeing uh, a whole stack of really great resources coming in to the section in the document here. Um, Sandy and Amanda, it looks like you're doing some really great stuff with visuals for change. Uh, and there are, there are a whole bunch of really great links in there. So I'd encourage everyone to go and check those out. Uh, we've got a few minutes left for the call. So, um, well, Sandy, I, uh, I'd like to throw to, to you now just to give us a a quick overview if there are maybe three actions that people can take after signing off from this call to 
build stronger and uh, more engaging dialogues with their communities. What would you recommend people do? <laughs> Gosh, I wasn't prepared to answer that question. I, I think actually that's a great question for, for Chris since she's the one that's <laughs> on the ground doing this work. You know, my, my response is always, well, become a member of NCDD and feel free to tap into the network with whatever questions you have. And, of course, email me anytime there's a need for a specific type of resource. Um, you know, I, I've... I, I think I understand what all's on the NCDD site and on a lot of other sites in this field really well, and it can be really hard for people to find specific types of resources. So I'm, I'm really happy to you know plug in a specific link when there's a question. Um, so just feel free to email me at sandy at thataway.org is my email address. If you need any specific types of resources, I could probably um, tell you where's a good place to find them. But yeah, I'll pass that question over to Chris. <laughs> well, um, one thing I think that uh, is important is, and I see as essential to each of the successful dialogues that we've had, is that a, I'll call it a planning committee, steering committee, group, whatever, um, that is made up of not the usual suspects, is engaged to think through this issue and begin the dialogue themselves. So let's say 10 or 12 people, not always the same people. You know, it's not like a core group of people who becomes the, 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 the mavens and then handles every issue, but a group that has some core people in it but then expands for each of the sessions and tries to bring in from its very outset um, some people who haven't been involved before and who may um, have a different kinds of stakes in the issue, and I would not uh, try to rush that process because I think so much is learned as that group that begins to reform for each new issue, who in our community would do we really want to try to get engaged uh, in, a, in a dialogue about this issue? How will we reach them? What are the dimensions of the issue? And as that committee itself begins to, you know, explore its own perspectives on this, that's the start. And that, I think, um, that process can take a long time, but it, it's, it's really essential. And I think if, it, I would say that it's, it's the, it's those groups then that start to form the, backbone of a network, not just the core group or the core set of individuals who might be spearheading this, but it's these other groups that have been kind of spun off who work together on one particular set of issues and maybe um, uh, very different, inviting uh, very different people to that conversation. And um, so I would, I would definitely do that. I would plan that that will, that will take a while. And not to rush the getting the rest of the community involved until uh, others have kind of been brought into that circle. Thanks, Chris. I think that's really valuable. Um, I'm going to ask John, do you have any final comments, uh, any recommendations that people can take? Um, yeah, I think um, the process is very important and keeping um, uh, when, when we're working in communities, we're always 
working with community-wide thinking, visioning. So ideally, everyone, um, <laughs> we'd like to hear from everyone. And um, I think that is so important, and it doesn't happen quickly, and you have to keep questioning who's missing and keep being very nimble and creative about how to bring more people into the dialogue. It's very easy to turn people off. The traditions are to have doors closed to to the general vast majority of, of citizens. So uh, I, I think that uh, dialogue is important in small groups, and I think that multiplying multipliers to get more and more people talking is vital to healthy communities, finding healthy futures for them, for democracy itself. And I would just encourage everyone, there, there are great resources that have been added to this, this doc. Certainly, um, this is a way that a lot of people in, in local communities can contribute a great deal um, to engaging the public before, you know, <laughs> it's too late to engage the public. So I, I just encourage folks to keep adding to this Google Doc, stay in touch, and we'll try to make opportunities to do that as well. We'll be posting this this. Um, session will be on a podcast that we'll post, and um, I hope we can keep this deliberation and dialogue going. Thanks, everyone. Awesome. Thank you, John. You kind of stole my thunder at the end there. So uh, <laughs> I'd just like to thank everyone yep. for joining. We're going to wrap up now. Um, Sandy, Chris, thanks for your time. Uh, and as John mentioned, um, we will make this available as a podcast on the Community Matters website, and uh, this Google Doc will be turned into a uh, emailable document that we'll distribute to everyone on the call today. So uh, thanks everyone very much. You're very welcome to stick. Thank on. you. Thank you. Thanks. You're very welcome to stay on the line and um, uh, editing this document. And, uh, Thank you everyone. Keep an eye out for the podcast Thank you. later in the week. Thanks a lot everyone. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks. Bye bye. <laughs>